Welcome to Smart Welsh People, Croesio i Poblga Cliog Cymru. I'm Dean Burnett, your host again. Uh, this is my podcast. I'm responsible for it, so any credit slash blame uh, should go directly to me. Depends on how much you like it, I suppose. Today we're going to be looking at uh, in parts of the South Wales Valleys regions, which is actually quite good for me because that's where I'm from. That's my origin story, shall we say? And the same goes for my guest, uh, my uh, person I'm interviewing, Mr. Matt Troy, good friend of mine, stalwart of the South Wales uh, spoken word scene. Does lots of, does a lot of this in festivals. You may have seen him around and. Sort of a bit of a, an all-rounder when it comes to artistic and creative expression. But it is actually quite a topical thing to be talking about the South Wales Valleys right now because they've been in the news a lot lately. At the time of recording, March 2020, early March, um, the Valleys and South Wales regions in general have just been battered by vicious uh, winter winter storms. Storm Dennis and Friends, shall we say. And it's been quite harrowing to see, like, featuring the news, all the flooding going on in places like Ponty Preeth and Cardiff had it too, my own home city. Parts of the city have been semi-submerged. Seeing that on the social media as well as the news is a bit, uh, it's a bit alarming. Uh, then these are alarming times, I guess. It's every third post on social media is something world-ending these days, so you know you sort of become immune to it. But you know it, it's been a troubling time. But you know, the South Wales Valleys regions have been devastated in many parts, and that's not a laughing matter. So yeah, like a big, uh, big shout out to my, my 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 valleys brethren, my comrades, or my people of my background who I have a lot of sympathy and support for, and I try to donate to wherever I can. And uh, it, even my own family, like my mother, was meant to visit this week, just gone because it's my son's birthday, and she couldn't get down here because the valleys were flooded out, and there was like literally all the roads out were blocked by rushing torrents of water, which aren't usually there, and uh, that's genuinely quite upsetting to think about because what if someone had been injured what if someone had been what if these floods had caused serious damage and devastation to someone's homes and they were grievously injured in the process there are no hospitals in my home valley there are no there are barely any emergency services at all after 10 years of austerity so you know, the, people could have died because of this and it's only by good fortune that no one did but you know it's not all been blitz spirit stuff i've seen a few from back home sharing stuff on social media like pictures of the flooded out valleys saying you know, we always have to send money to people overseas where are they now when we need them? And words that affect sort of the sentiment being that you know, we're always sending money abroad when tragedies happen, but uh, we're not getting any in return, and that's bad. I mean, objectively, that's a very fair point. You know, barely a month goes by when some tragedy overseas where we aren't being constantly asked to donate and support people who are affected, and uh, rightly so, and I think many people do. And if when something similar happens to us and nothing comes our way, then, yeah, then you have every right to complain, I guess. So, you know, there's a certain hypocrisy about that. But with caveats to that, I would say that are we sure that nobody from overseas is donating to the valleys? There's lots of different fundraising things going on, and I'd argue that if you... Um, you know, to look at the accounts and the source of donations, you get a fair few from overseas because you know, how often do you check foreign social media? There's no way to do that, really. And, you know, people, you know, it's an international community now. That's just something that does happen. People from Wales who have an affinity with the era are very widespread. So I think maybe we are getting some money from overseas. It's just not being mentioned anyway. I suspect that, personally, that some people are more keen to produce memes and things which exploit tragedy in order to abuse foreigners than actually check whether such claims are valid. But, hey, who am I to judge? Uh, well, I'll judge all I want, thank you very much. <laughs> I have every right to do so. All free speech and that. But I will say, even if there have been no donations from people from overseas to you know, the devastated regions of South Wales, then you have to acknowledge the fact that you know, as we as the UK have spent the last nearly four years now 
telling every other country on the planet that they can go fuck themselves, that we don't need them, we are better than them, and they'll come crawling to us once we are free of the shackles of the EU. And uh, the first opportunity we had, we elected the man who was sort of like the figurehead of this whole anti-everyone-else movement as our prime minister with a large margin. And um, you know, the people of Wales, Britain, my home region being one of them, seemed to endorse his, uh, the message of the current prime minister, which was foreigners, bad, us, great, and don't deal with that. So, you know, when you spent the last half a decade nearly uh, slagging off foreigners and everyone around them saying, we don't need you, we're better than you, we're powerful, we are great, you know, just look at our raw strength and skill. And then you say, but you're not giving us any money when we have problems, then yeah, that does seem a little bit inconsistent. But, you know, I'm sure people, you know, I'm not saying that people don't have valid reasons for voting the way they do, whether it, whether it be a general election or a referendum. I'm just saying that you know, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily judging or like condemning people for voting the way they do. That's a democracy. You have to live with the, with the outcomes of what the majority wants. Uh, like they say about democracy, it's the worst system apart from all the others. So you take it off the smooth. That's what I'm getting at, Steely. You have to accept the consequences of the decisions they make when they have consequences beyond what you wanted specifically, because that's just how it works. So when they're like, oh, if you've spent the last four years abusing foreigners, then saying, why aren't you giving me money when I want some? That's, that's a little bit hypocritical itself, perhaps. I guess the point of me saying all this is that, you know, I'm from the valleys, such people are from the valleys, and valley people are not one consistent, homogenous lump of people who all think the same way, all the same backgrounds, all are, all conform to the same stereotypes. We are as diverse and rich a culture as anyone's, and we have our own views and takes and interpretations of the matter, and that's good. That's how it should be. And if the decisions people make don't go your way. And that's sort of what uh, comes up in this particular episode, interview, conversation. I'm still struggling what to call these things. Uh, no, Mr. Matroy is a good friend of mine. I say he's at least as smart as I am, probably more so. But he's a man of art, a man of creativity and writing and so on. Whereas I'm Mr. Science Bod, even though we have very similar backgrounds and very similar uh, influences. Just, you know, his life went one way, mine went the other in terms of where, what we wanted to do with uh, our output. And I think that, you know, that speaks to the richness and diversity of the people of Wales as a whole. So I hope you'll agree. And uh, therefore, uh, please enjoy this uh, episode two of Smart Welsh People with Mr. Matt Troy. It's the last great Okay, another episode of uh, Smart Welsh People. I'm here today with Mr. Matt Troy. Hello. Hello. See, nice, nice dulcet tones of a proper Welshman there. Thank you very much. You say, like, smart people, and I'm like, oh, crap, do I have to say anything? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah, that is part of what I'm getting at, you know. I, mean, it, I was actually quite... I wanted to do it, but I was also quite hesitant about even using this title, because it's, you know, the whole thing of... You don't uh, big up your own intellectual capabilities more often than not if you're a sportsman you can do it fine but when you say i'm a smart person that's like oh what a decade you are instantly yeah you know, who you yeah for sure you? and uh, that's not helpful really trying to make people like what you're doing but you know that's um something i have to come overcome i guess so yeah uh basically uh, i'm going to talk to you about all your various endeavors uh which you uh, many many and varied i can see you've got a list there rather yeah. Uh, that's, that's a brief list you wrote when I told you I'm going to ask you about what you do. <laughs> you, yeah, you know, I had so much. Of, what do I do? And then, so uh, much prep time for this. <laughs> <laughs> it was meant to be uh, 
a double uh, double header with you and your podcast friend Drew Davis. That's right. Uh, but he is currently ill, so we'll catch him another time. Yeah. So basically, uh, I like to. I've got an idea to try and start this with uh, checking your Welsh credentials. There's okay. No, there's no minimum or maximum score. I'm just trying to work out how I, to. And this is not going to the government, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Because I'm not the well, world's well, biggest rugby fan, and I could get into trouble over that. I think. Yeah, like, I'm not either. But okay. it's you know it's uh, <laughs> these eggheads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Yes, that's uh, part of the stereotype, I guess. <laughs> the um, so uh, born in Wales. Yes. Where to? Clonapier in the Ronda. Doesn't get much Welsh than that, does yeah, it? Yeah, really? there's barely any uh, any vowels in there. <laughs> <laughs> vowels are overrated, and we all know it. Indeed. Uh, parents both Welsh? Uh, yes, they are. All grandparents Welsh? Um, no, not yeah. quite. So my mother's grandparents are Welsh, and they're from uh, Cinderford in the Forest of Dean. And my dad's are also from the borders as well. Mm. I think they were also foresters. Mm. Um, and there's some convoluted stuff going back, but yeah, a, a large chunk of them are from Wales. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's totally fine because I've, I, I say I stumbled. Um, I found out when I was 21 that uh, my grandmother's mother was Irish. Oh, and my father was just like, you didn't know that. This well, no, <laughs> this is the first time it's come up. Because yeah, you're 21. He said, well, he said, why do you think we like getting drunk so much? Is that's not, that's not only an Irish thing. That's awful. You can't say that. You're part Irish, but you know, that's uh, that's very much our thing too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, so you currently live in Wales, live in Cardiff. I do indeed. Don't speak Welsh. Um, like I dabble. Mm. I, I was it was quite good when I was a kid. Um, my grandmother speaks fairly fluent Welsh, and like it was always kind of encouraged. But the Welsh in my school, in my primary school, was a bit, bit rubbish really. And my secondary yeah. school was better, but by that point, it kind of lost yeah, a lot so, of the. Yeah, because it's not impetus, you know. Yeah, it, it is like one of the the oldest British language, but it's not got a lot of overlap with English, like a lot of the Romance languages do. That is true. Yeah. So it's kind of you know once you've grown up speaking English, it's not as easy to pick up. I would argue. Yeah, for sure. Although if you go on to try and learn German, which I'm also doing, ah, right. it really helps. <laughs> okay, that's worth knowing. Yeah. Tip for anyone out there. So yeah, so that's a good roundup of things. Uh, any particular. Uh, Welsh interests like you like you don't like rugby, but uh... I I don't dislike rugby. Yeah. I, I used to be a Pontypridd supporter when I was a kid, mm. uh, but I lived in like well, I live in Pendrin near Triorchy, so that was a big problem. Mm. So I kind of really didn't talk too much about rugby with my friends in school because my father used to take me to Pontypridd games, and if that came out in school, it would probably result in a hiding. <laughs> yeah, so that's... it just yeah, it kind of stopped me from being a big rugby fan. Yeah, I used to. Uh, I still do support uh, Tom Pentra AFC, mm-hmm. the very small uh, uh, club up in in Tom Pentra, and I used to um, draw the comic for its program. Oh, cool! Yeah, for a couple of seasons, which was great fun. Never mind the yeah. Bulldogs; it was called nice. the Tom Pentra Bulldogs. Yeah, yeah. look that up. Is it an archive <laughs> anywhere, or is that? Uh... Um, I don't think so, but I'll try and put them online. Right, like, cool. They're quite crude by modern sort of comic standards in in terms yeah, of the, the drawing styles, and hmm. but. Yeah, they're pretty fun, so I'll, I'll yeah. see if I can get them up online. That's one thing you do, a lot of drawing and creative stuff like that. I do. I think, are you something of a, in my perception of what you do, you seem to be something of a go-to guy for the Cardiff spoken word and writing scene. That is true, yeah, I, I am. I used to run a night uh, called uh, Mild Extravaganza <laughs> uh, in, in Goody Who Bar before it closed down, and uh, I also sort of kind of support Dan Mitchell a little bit in um, in like 10 Stories High in the Spoken Word Cardiff group. Mm. Um, although 10 Stories High very much is his project. You know, I'm just kind of like turn up and bolster numbers and mm. encourage people and get people in. But um, yeah, and also I've been going to Roth Writers for about, I want to say, three or four years now. Uh, Roth Writers is the largest um, writing group in Wales by like a massive factor. Okay. Like they, it's not all, they're not always there, 
but <laughs> there's a huge sort of community of people that, that sort of cycle in and out when they're right, available okay. to go. And I've sort of led a couple of the sessions there as well on occasion yeah. when Christina, the facilitator, has uh, not been available. Well, that's, well, that's, that's news to me because I, I knew of the Roth Writers Group. Yeah. And, um, what do you do there? Like, what, what is that? Like, obviously, it's the biggest in, in Wales, which is cool, but what, what does it involve? Um, Roth Writers is a twice-monthly, so the first two Tuesdays of a month, um, writing group where uh, it's facilitated by Christina Thatcher, who is uh, an American uh, person uh, from, <laughs> from around Philadelphia, which I think historically is a, quite a Welsh area. Really? Yeah, yeah, that sort of area um, of the States has got quite a lot of uh, Welsh influence in it. But I, don't, I don't know if she is or not, but mm. just to throw that in there. Okay, <laughs> um, so she um, uh, brings in a poem, uh, we read through the poem, and then there'll be a prompt set, and people in the room can write wherever they want. But you get 20 minutes, you can write a short story, a poem, whatever. And I find it to be incredibly useful. Uh, over the years, um, I've been short story writing since I was quite young, but didn't produce anything that I ever felt like I could show anybody until about mm. like four or five years ago, I think. Yeah, because I, I, as someone who was uh, on his fifth book now, you think I would know this sort of thing, but it's, yeah. it's, it's really, like, you know, <laughs> I fell into a whole other different route. It's all nonfiction for me. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I used to write creative stuff as a kid, uh, as a teenager, yeah. but I never really showed anyone it because... I think it's a very different beast when you're sort of, I created this. This is entirely the product of my consciousness, my yeah. mind. And like when I'm doing science stuff, it's a lot easier. It's like, well, this is some, this is data someone else found. Yeah. Here's my creative spin on it. Enjoy. Or not. I don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> when you're blogging as well, I can do that. But if, this is different, isn't it? If I'm going to be embarrassing about it and tell the, 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 the bitter honest truth, I think the first thing I ever wrote was I was about 10 or 11 years old and I wrote a 12-page Doctor Who script. Nice. Um, Tom Baker era, uh, mm. and me and a couple of the a couple of my nerdy lad mates read it in Sunday school. Mm. Uh, not out in front of the group, we just kind of like snuck off at the end and kind of, of course, yeah. did the parts, you know. Yeah. And that was the first thing I can. I'm sure I did stuff before that, but that was the first thing I can remember, sort of in any way putting out there, mm. and uh, maybe a couple of uh, school poetry competitions. In fact. Uh, and this is me bragging now wholesale. This is me going against the Welsh trend. <laughs> I wrote a harvest poem uh, in okay. school and it got taken to the headmaster, not because it was a really good poem, but because they were worried I'd stolen it from somewhere. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> or, or stolen a bit of it. I mean, some of it was, was was vaguely illiterate, but parts of it, I think, might have been flow- just flowery enough for them to wonder, yeah. how the hell has a Ronda boy come up with these words? <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty much the problem I'm trying to tackle with this whole project. <laughs> yeah. I had a similar thing myself. I... Um, uh, I was in sixth form, and I was I was named house captain uh, of, uh, of the Howell House, uh, which is what I was part of. Yeah, and then I got sacked <laughs> same week. <laughs> I literally hadn't done it. I hadn't had a chance to do anything. The only job of the house captains in my school was to stand next to the person who won the essay prize. You know, it was the, the bard, but yeah. no one knew it was grandiose because it was a it was a pretend school which didn't have that sort of uh, <laughs> aspirations. Yeah, and it turns out because I'd won that. So I'd have to give myself my own award. So I got sacked. And they didn't tell me why. It was a good reason. But they said, you're a house captain. Also, you're sacked. <laughs> okay, so that really took the, took the shine off the award, I suppose. Because um, it was a dystopian sci-fi future where the, we, the valley I lived in was um, run purely by children because adult-exclusive virus had... Uh, the classic, yeah. Yeah, had wiped out them and the kids were left to survive. And... Um, well, it was riddled with Mary Sue's, don't get me wrong. I'm not gonna, I'm <laughs> well, yeah, that. absolutely. You, at that age, you can't tend to want to put your friends in there in some yeah, way. Yeah, all my friends were in it, all, all the descendants, because it wasn't now. Yeah, was, yeah, and you kind of want them to not like, you want them to like it. So you, it's, it's probably a bit like it's bardic tradition. Mm. You know, the bards would go to the different courts of the different princes of Wales, and they'd have 
various poems that were about how cool that the, the prince and his ancestors were. Yeah. So it's like that when you're a kid writing. Your audience is basically people who can beat you up at any time. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I didn't know that was a thing with the bardic stuff, but yeah, yeah, this, yeah. this is actually outside of my um, realm of experience. That's why I wanted to talk to you about this, because you very seem to be up, up to speed on Welsh culture, Welsh tradition, mythology yeah. and stuff. And it's really interesting, because my son's actually been just been assigned a school project, like find a Welsh myth and do a little report on it. Yeah. And yeah, but there's a lot. There's a lot to work with there. And a lot of it's quite strange. It is. Um, I, I, I posted something on Facebook about this the other day about how all sort of Welsh stories uh, from the past, where there's a, mu- a multitude of Welsh people involved, they all die like wholesale. Like everybody dies except for usually like seven people. Uh, or the other thing is that all Welsh folk tales end like um, a dad who's been asked at the end of a ch- like a, a nighttime story to their child. What happens next, Dad? And he's like, uh, they all had lemonade and went to the zoo. You know, the, the, the Mabinogion's a great example. The, um, the second branch, they all go to Ireland. Everybody in Ireland dies apart from seven pregnant women. All of the Welsh soldiers die apart from seven of them. And the head of their king, that they take back to Wales. And then they feast in a place for seven years when they arrive there. Uh, Branwen dies of a broken heart, the, the, the sister of the king. And then the king's head, that's been alive for, this, for a while, gets taken to London, Tower of London, where that would eventually be a bury there, and then they all go home. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> all well stories end like yeah. that. We we don't seem to like ourselves very much. We seem to yeah embrace I, our own genocide quite readily. I think so. I think that it's one of those things where we're a people who love a lost cause. Yeah. I, I had a stand-up joke about that, which no one ever laughed at, saying, you know the Welsh are good losers because they've turned wooden spoons into an art form, <laughs> which is a, a, a literal truth. But, it um, is true, yeah. yeah. Thank you for being the first person to ever laugh at that. So That's a very good joke. I finally found my niche, it turns out, it's just you. Uh, we'll have to do this more often because yeah. I, I have others. I can't remember Excellent. them, right? <laughs> so, which is always like an interesting joke, like what our historical myths are, or is it just something you've stumbled into weirdly enough I think there must have been some sort of uh, I must have touched a monolith that year in school so that would have been what's that like eight nine something in in junior school Mm. and that's when I kind of wrote my first Doctor Who poem uh, play so I wrote my first Harvest poem and also um, we covered the the, the Mabinogion and our Mm. head teacher Phil Rowlands who's uh, He's still about, and he's um, a writer. He's, he runs like a he runs like a, a website, a creative writing website. Um, and he lives up in Tonopandi, and he wrote um, a sort of a, a, a Christmas Carol story set in New York a couple of years ago. Uh, but he was an incredibly creative guy. He was a really cool headmaster actually, and he made like a full size Celtic warrior for outside of class. Nice. Um, a card, you know, cardboard and painted, and they made like a Welsh um, Celtic hut that the kids could go in. It was a very creative school mm. that I went to as a youngster. That's nice. I can't add up. Overrated skill. I'll cry if I get remainder in that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You did touch on something about the surprise that someone like a Ronda Boy would write something which was of decent quality. Yeah. And I think I mentioned this in a previous recording I've done, but um, this idea that we are sort of very quick to self-criticize and self-condemn. Yeah. And we don't really give ourselves any credit. I, mean, I think you've done some stand-up comedy as well, and I've done yeah. the Welsh scene too, and... I know it's quite common in a lot of comics across the country, across the world probably, but the, the lack of enthusiasm for networking, for promoting yourself. Yeah. A lot of people have that. It's not a Welsh thing, but it seems to be quite overly represented in the Welsh scene, I find. like we, we, We're quite happy to do gigs and stuff, but yeah. to, to go out and tell someone, I'm good, you should book me, seems to be a bit of a, bit of a mental stumbling block for a lot of 
Welsh people I, I know. Do you ever found that with obviously from the right inside of things? Absolutely, yeah. Like, I know some of the funniest people and some of the most creative and cleverest people, uh, and they're from back home. And they, locally, they might do quite well, hmm. uh, but they should be doing a lot better than they are. Any, any thoughts of where that might come from? Because I don't really. Yes, I have very oh. strong thoughts. Oh, of good. Where this might That's come exactly from, what I was hoping for. Um, I feel like uh, this might be a bit sort of up in the air, maybe a bit, a bit of a leap. But Wales has always been a very exclusively working class country. So you look back, obviously, the once upon a time there were princes in charge of various sections of Wales and occasionally a king that united them all. Hmm. But even so, it was more like a gang, like a mafia. Hmm. So you'd have like an area that was maybe like, you know, 50 square miles. Taffia, as we call it. Yeah, Taffia. Hmm. And you'd have a local prince who was in charge and you'd have his band of um, like, like local psychopaths in, in, in fancy cloaks who hmm. were his warriors. And then you had the peasantry. But... Those guys, there was never going to be like a big hierarchy in there because the kings is probably more as likely to get killed as everybody else. <laughs> and if a neighboring kingdom or the English invaded or the Irish or the Danes invaded, everybody got involved. Mm. And then after a while, all those guys got killed off and an aristocracy gets installed. Um, initially an Anglo-Norman aristocracy and then later, you know, the, the traditional English aristocracy. And I think it's slightly different to Scotland because Scotland was was free a lot longer than Wales was, mm. and the same for Ireland. But there's always been, the, the, the Welsh culture has always been the people beneath that, and then the aristocracy above it, which is disconnected. And obviously, there, there are sure there are examples, many examples of where that is not the case, and everybody's connected within the community. But I feel that Wales has sort of seen its own identity within its working class, mm. as opposed to its leaders. And Wales has always been strongly matriarchal as well. Yes, I mean the Welsh mam is quite a the Welsh mam a stereotype, is a, but a valid one, I think. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I'm sure like the Irish mam and the and the Scottish mam and even the English mother or whatever they they've all got their place. But um, yeah, I think that we're good in communities, we're good amongst each other, we're good amongst ourselves. But that sort of working class is insular, not in a bad way, in a way that strengthens us as a people. Mm. But maybe makes it a bit more difficult when fancy people come along who are in charge <laughs> right, yeah. but are different to us. Yeah, weirdly enough, I watched an episode of The Crown uh, this year. I think most Welsh people watched it. They did an episode on Abba Yes, Band. actually, yeah. Caris, my previous interview said exactly this. As it, well, talked about it as in it was an excellent representation of... It, it was. Yeah. And there was a bit in it that really surprised me, which was um, the, one of the Queen's advisors was, was advising her about coming to Wales. Hmm. And he said, you have to remember, Mum, this is not uh, England, this is Wales. Like a, a show of emotion is not in, to be encouraged, but to be expected. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's really strange because Welsh people, I've never really thought of it in a, in a meaningful way before, but are often considered to be an emotional people. Like, yeah, we will. Welsh people are often we will cry at sporting events and mm. we are. You know, the kutch. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we are. we're a contact species. <laughs> Prone to singing for no reason. Singing for no reason at all whatsoever. The situation calls for, or not. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah. absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, but that is something which is sort of, um, it's something I'm, I'm actually working on now because I'm doing this book about their emotions in terms of the science behind them, what they do for us and things. But there is a sort of cultural perception of emotions as something which is 
counterproductive or at least in contrast to intellectualism, rational thought. Yeah. So I guess if you think about people as being constantly emotional or emotional, yeah. then you would assume that they were not as clever as yeah. anyone else, which it isn't, I mean, that's nowhere near how it works. But, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. But if we are, if we've got that reputation, I guess that could feed into it a bit as but well. In Britain, especially a country that is renowned for its stoicism, and mm. the um, yeah. the north, I think, feel gets the same rap as well. The north of England gets the yeah, same rap. Totally, as yeah, totally. Uh, maybe even more so than the Scots, who have got like this. You know, if you what are the, what are the Scots like? They're the the canny people. You mm. know, they're the, the smart, clever people. Um, but then with the north of England, the stereotype there is that is more or less identical to us, except you know, they get it for having ferrets in their trousers, where we get it for having sheep. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in every sense of the word, yeah. 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 That's something I wanted to stress with this thing. This isn't, no, this is never meant to be an anti-English thing. No, I don't, absolutely I don't think, not. I mean, as a science enthusiast and practitioner, like, I don't think it's possible to be anti-English because that, that term covers such a vast range and variety of different types of people. So, yeah. Uh, more so than Welsh does, because there's a lot fewer of us and yeah. we have a bit more of a consistent... Well, that's oh. it. And if you look at London, like there's a lot in common between your sort of uh, average Welsh person and your average traditional Cockney person. Mm. Like maybe not nowadays where the, the houses yeah, are all empty and owned by Russian oligarchs. <laughs> but um, the, the traditional Cockney people of the same, very similar kind of community structure as, as, as the, what the traditional Welsh one. Mm. Even, even as far as having their own languages, their own way of speaking that is counter to the... Mm. to the dominant uh, structure of the time. Let's go back to you a bit more. Um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I always enjoyed that. That was great. Uh. So you do a lot of, let's just, well, creative writing. You are, so Arthur Smith introduced me to the word and interviewed, he, he describes himself as a flaneur, <laughs> someone who does like uh, poetry, art, singing, music, uh, any sort of creative expression and wanders around a lot. Yeah, uh, that I does, like that, <laughs> that, that, that does seem to describe what you do a lot. Yeah, I got my uh, I got my fingers in seven of the writing underworld's pies. That's <laughs> that is true. Yeah, um, so I'm a stand-up comic, as you know. Uh, I'm, I'm largely a hobby comic, although I have done several professional uh, mm. gigs, you know, festival gigs, uh, club gigs, that kind of thing. But mostly, I found that I just enjoy doing stand-up, and stand-up is like script writing. In mm. that, if you want to do it, you it has to be your one thing. Right. Yeah. Oh, be, yeah. Yeah. You totally. Know, if, yeah. You, if you want to get ahead in it, it has to be the thing that you throw everything into, and I, I, I don't have the the, the time right. or the emotional capacity. I have exactly <laughs> the same thing because I, I, haven't, I haven't heard the Tim Hobby comic before. I wish I had because that's exactly what I was yeah. when I was doing it. Still, still technically coming to that umbrella, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'd like doing it. I did as much as I could for like a couple of years. Yeah. And then I say I got the point of thinking, well, if I want to do this. I've got to abandon everything else because we're talking. Like I did uh, a few gigs with a mutual friend, Wes Packer, who is like yeah. one of the best ever comics Amazing in, comic, in history. Yeah. I think you know, I went to the, I think it was to Grantham, and that was like a six-hour round trip for an evening for him to do twenty minutes, me to do seven. Yeah, the environmental impact alone was was more than I was willing to put up <laughs> yeah. with. But, but like, I, I can't do this. Like, I've, I've just I'm not wanting to be married. We're hoping to settle down and start a family. Yeah. Like, this isn't a life I can really. Uh, yeah, you know, dabbling for too much longer. From what I was saying just then about screenwriting too, um, even that is is a lot easier just to do, you know, than stand up because of the, you said the travel that's involved. Mm. Like you know, we we've got many mutual stand up comic friends who are doing quite well at the moment, so yeah. doing very well indeed. And um, I think even if you are sort of earning like the big bucks that stand up can give you, mm. <laughs> relatively speaking, it's still a tough yeah, job it, on your time and, and on your mental health. Yeah. yeah. 
I was never into that point where I thought that was worth it to me. Yeah. So that, that was interesting. We have the same sort of uh, approach to it, which is yeah. probably why we talk a lot and get along yeah. quite well. Yeah. That's quite well, I think it is a good jumping off point. I think that it, it, it's worth having a go at if you fancy it because, I mean, like stand-ups don't like to encourage other people to start stand-up, obviously. Mm. We, we don't like uh, you to make powerful enemies, <laughs> as Dan Mitchell once said to me when I started doing <laughs> stand-up, uh, created Dan Mitchell. But... Uh, yeah, it, it has sort of opened doors for me to try other things because mm. you really take it on the chin instead of you really get a, a bruising sometimes. Yeah, you, you have to become robust. Trial by fire. I said very much so. Yeah. It's weird for me because I, I tell people like I I spent two years embalming cadavers for medical school, which involved like bringing in dead bodies, embalming them, cutting them up with yeah. this, this, for surgical practice and stuff. And I also tell them that I did stand-up. There's a second where people go, oh, I could never do that. Yeah, I know, <laughs> so yeah. you, you prefer the, the corpse yeah. butchering to the, the actual just stand nice relaxing corpse. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird perception of it. Like it, It's such an intimidating thing for most people. Yeah, it is. It's most people's anxiety dream. Especially there are some gigs now where people are naked doing it. So yeah. that is literally people's <laughs> anxiety dreams. Yeah. So um, what are your sort of thoughts about the sort of Welsh creative scene, I suppose, and from someone who's in it in various guises? It is, it's very vibrant and there's a lot going on, a lot of interesting stuff. And I think some of the um, the people at the forefront of it, um, I'll take a case in point as uh, Griff Reese from the Zubavari Animals, okay. uh, who also has very a, a lot of his own side projects, is one of the most creative people on the planet. I've seen him make films, I've seen him do music, I've seen him do, um, he did a, uh, a tour called Praxis Makes Perfect uh, with the with Neon Neon, uh, with, mm. which he did with Boom Bip. And it was a whole weird performance play slash gig around the banning of uh, Dr. Zhivago. Okay. And it was incredible. Like at one point, like a bunch of sort of Italian communist <laughs> sort of um, militias come through the audience and you're tossing like the manuscript around. Like they just, people are literally throwing it across the room while these soldiers are searching for it. And there's so much... So much great ideas and, and like obviously he's right at the top but on the grassroots level there's so many interesting things going on in this city and um i think that again we're a little bit out of the way aren't we that's the, mm. the problem with cardiff like it's not even bristol yeah that's oh, i mean from the, from the uk perspective yeah, yeah yeah so i think that does uh sort of detriment things but yeah i i know people are doing amazing things in this town mm. um case in point uh, comedy wise people like uh, Darren Coles and Glenn Wade of the Death Hilarious who've done mm. very creative very interesting comedy playwrights like uh, Neil Beber are writing really interesting uh, mm. fascinating plays and then there's the, the acting stock that we've got which are, are currently Welsh actors are, have always done very well I think mm, generally yeah yeah. Well, when, they do, when they do well they do very well in my yeah. experience but I was thinking of this because I think yeah, we were in a local pub the waitress came over to bring one of our friends their meal they'd ordered. Like, it looked very familiar. And it was like, oh, you you were the star of that sitcom from, you know, from the 90s. And, uh, I know who this yeah, is, yeah. Like city, yeah. yeah. So, like, it's nice that you're here, but it's also like, you were the leader of the sitcom, which is a very popular one. From, yeah. Uh, but that's not enough. Being no. the leader of a Welsh sitcom, it doesn't even vaguely yeah. keep you, uh, keep that, you going, it seems. That's a shame. And I, I'm, I'm good friends with Boyd Clack, uh, the, yeah, Boyd, yeah. the sitcom writer. I've known him for years. He was a mentor for me when I started screenwriting. Um, I was incredibly lucky to get him as, as a help because he obviously is a, a BAFTA Cymru winner and mm. uh, a man with a lot of experience dealing with a difficult uh, sort of Welsh BBC uh, mm. to get you know to get comedy on over the years but yeah he, he's been an invaluable help to me and he is a bit of an elder statesman of that 
sort of thing within yeah. the city. Yeah. Somebody, when I was back home in the, the Garrow Valley, it seemed like he was, he was Welsh comedy. Like there was yeah, literally yeah. nobody else doing it. It was him and, and, and Brian Sparks, wasn't it? Barry Welsh. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that was a bit of a left field turn for comedy. It, it like, was a really yeah. strange one, yeah. I remember really liking it, but I could see, like, did it work outside of Wales, in England, or anywhere? It, so, I don't know. I don't know how far that went. He's the dad from Peppa Pig now, isn't he? Yeah. No, he's the narrator. Oh, the narrator, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because yeah, he was Shadwell in making a video, too, wasn't he? He was Shadwell in yeah, making yeah. a video, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess so, because I remember with Satellite City, I used to think it was a very funny show because it was quite surreal and it wasn't that sort of traditional, um, sort of whimsical Welsh yeah. uh, kind of show. It was quite dark. Um, dark moments, yeah. Very dark moments in it and, and very surreal moments. And I was always a little bit sort of sad, really, that compared to something like Father Ted or like Rabsi Nesbitt, that it didn't have a wider audience. Mm. Like, I'm sure it was available somewhere in England, because I'm sure co- cousins of mine that were from Wales but lived in England watched it. But yeah, it was a shame, mm. really, because I, I think it stood up against a, a lot of the shows of the day. And I think that, you know, in the same way that the royal family, which is set in a very specific place and is very, about a very specific class of people, had a great universal appeal, mm. albeit that being a lot more sort of social realist than, than something like Satellite City, that people, we, <clears throat> it would be good to see what people outside of the experience of the Welsh Valley sort of thought of it. I like Satellite City. I was, watch, I was watching that and I thought that was a, it was fun. Like, it was, yeah. Also, it was nice to see someone who talked like you on telly, yeah, that's which, right, which yeah. was still a rarity, yeah. it, unless it went through SOC and... I didn't speak well, so. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, compared to uh, other sitcoms that have, like, a regional basis, I'm thinking of, like, Felix Knights or something, yeah. or, which, which I really loved as well, because I grew up in a pub just like that. Yeah. It was, like, to swap the accents. Oh, so yeah, you know, we, just... we all knew a Felix yeah. club in, in our Precisely, local yeah. working-class town. Yeah. I lived in one, so, like, uh, yeah, that, was, yeah. that, was my, that was my life uh, <laughs> growing up, so very big fan of that. But most of the sitcoms I find there's always a certain, like, there's a canniness about some of the characters, like the, the Phoenix Knights, like Brian's a schemer and stuff. Yeah. Or even in some like Bottom, which is sort of just ridiculous over the top. Yeah. Eddie is still a mechanical genius, so he could build printed presses <laughs> in his own bedroom and stuff. To make money. Yeah. Welch money. <laughs> yeah, it was triangular, which is, which is a joke I did enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that sort of savvy, which doesn't seem to come a lot. I don't see that a lot in, I don't watch a lot of telly anyway, but in Welsh comedies and stuff, like we're, we're sort of like, oh, we're the daft ones. We're like, look, yeah. oh, look how thick we are. Look how bumbling we are. Like that, that that does great after a you while. You know what? That was one of the reasons Boyd's character, um, was it Gwyn in Satellite mm. City, was, I, he was very inspiring to me as a young kid because he was that sort of like leftish intellectual type that, yeah. that read books. And he, of course he was, you know, an, an, an idiot really, yeah. like all of the rest of the characters. But just the idea that there was like somebody at the heart of the family there who, who did read books and mm. was interested in more than like rugby or or scamming the social or whatever yeah. most of the things end up being about, you know? Yeah. Because I've seen a few, a few Welsh sketch shows where that's basically it. No, yeah. Like, hey, we like rugby, do we? Hey, hey yeah. you mentioned this. Oh, marvellous. Like, yeah. Oh, really? I mean, yeah, there's a mad old woman up the street and there's yeah. sheep everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I first experienced that because um, if you know the film Valley Girls... Uh, no, I've not seen it. No, no but I, I filmed that in my valley. Uh, okay. Wendy Phillips was the um, she was the lead. She was like a cleaner lady from my school. So she, oh, right. she, she was like, again a local matriarch, yeah, or, or the funny one. And the pub I lived in, they, they based themselves there. Like the, the entire crew were there the whole days mm-hmm. and coming back and forth and making. They, they made friends. Everyone like it was really quite quite a nice sort of atmosphere. Like it's like oh, it's a film crew. And that's all good, isn't it? Yeah. 
And then you saw the film, like, oh, this is just a massive insult to every last one of us. It's like, yeah. well, there's one film in the shop. Oh, it's a great escape. Have you got any new ones in yet? Oh, we got uh, Jaws. That's marvellous. It's a set in like 1997. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so you've just been making friends with us, and you know we're not this, but you've decided yeah. to just slag us all off. Yeah. Like, oh, that's, that, I, was a, that was a lesson learned, I think. They, they, uh, years ago, when I was working um, in an insurance company in, in, in Cardiff, there was a, like a, one of our team leaders. She was you know, sort of a, a, a valley's ma'am herself. And um, one of the other guys was talking about Satellite City and as if she was pre-programmed to say it, said, I think they do make fun of us, see? Like, <laughs> okay. About, you know, these outsiders who are making it. But it's it's not... I don't think she'd even really seen the show or she'd probably seen no, clips no. of it. It wasn't to her taste because it was gross. But um, mm. it, it, it was just... That is the byline. That's what we've got to remember: is that if there's, they're coming in to make things about us, that they're going to be making fun of us. Yeah, that's yeah. generally like you know, like the current modern sitcoms set yeah. in Wales are either look how scabby we are, look yeah. how uh, look how like say swindling the social we are, like a certain show which is about to come out. Yes, which, uh, yeah, and or. An English person's got to live here. Oh, God, look at the locals. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. You know, like, even Gavin Stacey does that to a certain extent. Oh, yeah, even Satellite City did that with Randy. The yeah, exactly. yeah, there's always been an outsider comes yeah. in and says, these people are nuts. What's going on here? Yeah, and yeah. And like, I, I don't think that's essential, personally. I would argue no. it's not. But uh, No, I, I don't think so. I don't think that anything, any of the other examples that we've... There's a, there's a lot in Father Ted, which is very Irish-specific, mm. that... Nowadays, I think people know about, but I think at the time probably didn't have. So yeah, what, what is an Egypt? You know, yeah. I remember there being a big debate totally, yeah. about that in school. <laughs> What's an Egypt? Yeah, and, and that was just left to the you know, to assume that we'd just pick it up and understand it. Yeah, and I don't think that the things that people in the valley say are even that difficult to <laughs> no, understand. Not even totally. Like it's they fine. Might, no. They might throw in a huarateg or something, you know, fair play, but mm. even if that happened, I'm sure that they would probably explain it a bit or just ignore it as just random yeah, Welsh noise it, it, for you. Know? Exactly, you know, it, it's, it's a throwaway thing. Like every sitcom has like four or five jokes every minute which just don't land or just yeah. oh, oh, aren't important. It's fine. It's a comedy show. I remember watching a, a sitcom in the 90s. I can't remember what it was called but I think it was Maureen Lipman playing a Jewish ghost. Okay. Yes, yeah, so haunt me. So haunt me, yeah. yeah. And like there were a lot of, of her sort of mannerisms in that that I picked up on like really quickly. I remember like doing them in school and people going, Wait, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Valid, valid question, like, I guess. I am an elderly Jewish ghost woman, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, there was no question about it. I understood what, what was being said, even if I couldn't quite understand what was yeah. being said. Yeah. yeah, I think giving the audience a bit of credit isn't that that bad a thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the last great You enjoy reading and learning stuff I do for its own sake which yeah. I think is far more common than people realise and massively underrated yes yeah. also a very valleys thing yeah if you if you go back a little bit and I'm going to quote the Manistry preachers here uh, libraries give us power then mm. work came and made us free and library culture like, just a generation or two before I was born was a huge thing like various uh, sort of you know, working men's groups set up through collieries would mm. build libraries into their social clubs where men could come and obviously it was men come and mm. read the books there. But even so, you know, there was a, a strong culture at home as well of, of education. There was always an idea, and even when I was in school, there was an idea that you got an education because that's how you got out mm. of the valleys. Uh, it's sad, really, because if the valleys were in Austria, the houses would cost millions of pounds. Each. <laughs> yeah, weird, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, they don't. So, uh, yeah, I do like to, to you know, just to educate myself. Podcasts have been 
the greatest thing that has yeah. happened to me in years because it's, it's quite a boon for that sort of culture isn't it yeah like most people in the in the social media age i was starting to lose my ability to read books <laughs> yeah short stories books where you could read the chapters individually out of mm. order if you so wanted to i'm a huge fan of short stories i always have been and it, it always sort of irked me when i was young that there was a point in time where you could like where someone like l ron hubbard could knock out a two thousand word story and get paid fifty dollars for it or like two cents yeah. a word and that I couldn't because I could definitely do that if I applied myself, yeah. you know. He was riddled with amphetamines at all time, wasn't he? Well, that's how he did it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You keep yourself high and, and then yeah. and keep writing. And This isn't the insight to my writing process, by the way. I mean, I know I, I have a lot of output, but um... I am very suspicious of the whole drunken writer trope because yeah. I can't do anything if I'm half cut. No, I have <laughs> Let alone tried write a novel. Drunken writing. Oh, yeah, me too. When, when, when I'm particularly stressed of deadlines, I'll have a glass of wine and keep going. Yeah. I'm not drunk. No. I'm, I'm just taking the edge off for one of the best yeah yeah for sure yeah but then you got dylan thomas i think he's a big part of that as in yeah as drunk writers go yeah <laughs> it's kind of hard to top his example he is yeah one of the greatest examples he's up there isn't he a, a mm. humble welsh writer up there with hemingway and uh and uh, under s thompson and all the other crazy <laughs> drug and drink writers in, yeah writing and hedonism very much yeah. uh, go hand in hand it seems but yeah, so anyway, there is a point about podcasts. I was getting to that stage where I was struggling to read full novels, mm. and I still am. Um, so I'm still kind of plodding through a couple of year, but I needed to get information somehow. Mm. Uh, so I started to pick up on you know, random podcasts that people recommend. When you start listening to podcasts, you yeah. listen to crap. You listen to a lot of really bad stuff because you're like, right, I'll just some random person's like oh you're gonna check out this history podcast that i found you're like oh this is dull but still mm. i'm walking around i'm doing the dishes and i'm learning something and mm. i'm not having to like look over my shoulder at the tv all the time and from there then you get a bit more savvy into it and then obviously as a white male eventually you have a podcast somehow <laughs> <laughs> and a shirt to go with it somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I did actually say that uh, myself. I have a podcast, of course. Yeah. This is one, and I have a previous one. Um, but I, I didn't want to be too straight white guy talking about comedy because I, I always referred to it as that's the Smith of podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> it's the default state, and then you yeah. Know, um, well, that's actually a nice little uh, way to work into your current project. Uh, very big fan myself. The, the We Make Things Fight podcast. Would you like to tell us about that? Yes, this is my latest um, treasure. <laughs> um, so uh, really good. I want to stress that. By the way, I, thank you. I, that that means an awful lot to me well, and to Drew as well. But, stand by. Um, it. <laughs> yeah, you can call me. <laughs> um, thank you. I will. Um, 2018, Drew and I wanted to do a podcast. Drew Davis, um, uh, former stand-up comic himself and um, local man. Um, <laughs> area man. <laughs> yeah, area man. And um, we, were, we were trying to come up with ideas. And we, we were at a house party or a, at a barbecue with friends. And we were just randomly talking about fights. I think that, that what started it, and this is like one, an episode that we will do in future, which is Critters versus Gremlins. Right, yeah. And it hit like a bunch of connectors between me and Drew because we're both big horror nerds. We both love um, picking apart the minutiae of things. Mm. And we both love arguing about how a what-if scenario would go. From there, it got weirder. And you've already listened to Thomas the Tank versus 50 Lions. I've them all, yes. But yeah. that was a particular highlight. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Thomas the Tank versus 50 Lions was a ridiculous, drunken idea that came up at like 2 o'clock in the morning at that barbecue. And like, this is the podcast. This is what we're going to do. So we started it. We, we went low-ball to start with and did Jason Voorhees versus Mike Myers the fictional serial killers but since then we've covered 
all kinds of topics. We've done um, Fossil Collective, Mary Anning versus Computer Inventor, Ada Lovelace. Mm-hmm. We've done Bigfoot versus Mothman. Of course. We've <laughs> done um, my, my personal favorite, the Nachthexen, the Night Witches, a, a Soviet bomber group from World War II made up entirely of women, mm-hmm. versus the YPJ, the uh, Women's Protection Units uh, from the um, Kurdish militias in the Middle East today, which was one of the most enlightening things I've ever yeah, actually taken part in in my to, life. I wanted to mention that as well. Yeah. <laughs> I learned so much, and I, I, I enjoy mm-hmm. that so much. Um, yeah, and you know, people like Eddie Egan and um, uh, David Toskey, the, the American super cops, mm. Yeah, we just covered loads of things and we fight them. And, you know, the, it's not really about the outcome. The outcome is basically point scoring between me and Drew yeah. and a way of me lording it over him. <laughs> yeah. But it is all about talking about these people and then, you know, sort of having a bit of fun with, with mm. what we talk about. It's what is every pub conversation, you know, it's, yeah. at some point. I think the, the, the brilliance of it is that you've taken the playground slash classic pub conversation yeah. in a fight between X and Y. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a staple of many a drunken conversation. Absolutely, or, yeah. Uh, well, as you said, that's how it started. Yeah. It, as, as I've said in the past, it is basically top Trump's, uh, a top Trump stretched over an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> but, but definitely, yeah. But it's like, and you've used the phrase three times, edupainment in it, which I think yeah, is yeah. obviously, obviously self deprecating. Inform, I, educate, and entertain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I sort of consider it as uh, stealth dutainment. It's not as good a portmanteau, but it's what I've got. No, you're right. Yeah. But it's like, I've, again, I've learned so much. Just without even realizing, yeah, that episode, the uh, the Night Witches versus the YPJ, that was it started off. Drew did a five minute summary of the Middle East and why it's like it is, yeah, which I genuinely think should be on the curriculum. I it's know, a, like I've why I've never heard any of this. This yeah. is all it's so useful. Like, all new stories now are suddenly in context. Yeah, to have it just explained. Yeah. It, as a prelude to a, a theoretical battle between two all female armies. Yeah, was possibly the best way to find out about this sort of thing absolutely it's great that it's out there because i think i think you you have described yourself on the podcast as a welsh nerd or, yeah. or the nerd who is welsh <laughs> i think you specify welsh and so is drew yeah um if you haven't seen matt and drew um they have a similar vibe uh I, i'm not gonna say dr evil and mini me but M- more, more like master blaster from <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit more like that that's a rather tall chap who is uh, slightly shorter yeah uh, than, but you know it, it's it's yeah, you, you have the similar. Like I've, uh, I, I think I would count myself as part of the Welsh nerd. Community. Oh yeah, absolutely. The male ones, especially, we have a sort of thing, a vibe, which is just like, yeah, one of those Welsh nerds. Yeah, it's not a character I've ever seen represented in the mainstream, though. Do you think of anything where it has? Um, been? There was something on the. I think it was the Fast Show where Paul Whitehouse played like a student with long hair and glasses, and he would like talk about being mental. I think a lot, and I think right. that was kind of a Welsh nerdy character. Um, yeah, do you know what? That that's true. That is. I know so many groups of English friends when I go there who have got like a taffy mate who is when he turns <laughs> up he's got like a metal t-shirt on some kind of metal band on his yeah, t-shirt and he knows look. absolutely loads about anime and Star Wars and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah okay yeah, it, it's, it's a recurring trope of a character isn't it but absolutely it doesn't yeah. get referenced outside of yeah. real life very often which I yeah. think again which is something I'm trying to amend with this effort that I'm going through here yeah um, the, the, one of the, the best examples in Wales at the moment is Adam Flewellyn do you know about this guy no he's done um, he's working on the second series of a web series uh, at the moment called The Veil which oh, is heard a, of that, yeah. Yeah, um, which is fantastic. It's really funny. It's really crude. It's kind of like a, I would, I would equate it to sort of like a Welsh South Park, mm. but also it, it's very sort of, very cleverly done, very sort of self-referencing, uh, and he is a, a great archetype of that. Mm. The, the main character, which I think is a proxy for himself, is, is a great archetype of that Welsh nerd character. 
Cool. So there's, there is something out there at least. If yeah, it begins. Yeah. yeah. Like, it only takes one go. So uh, yeah. yeah. Is there anything you wanted to bring up? I'll end this part. Up just to... One thing I, I also want to cover if I'm doing anything about Wales. Do you know anything about Ivor Bach? I've heard, I've heard of it, but I don't know. So Ivor Bach, Little Ivor, as he would be in English, was uh, is the name of a club in Cardiff at the moment. Yeah, the Welsh Club. Bach, yeah, Ivor yeah, Bach. He was um, a local king that lived up where um, Castle Coch is today, just north of Cardiff. Um, he might have had a castle on that original site we don't know and some of his land got taken off him by the local Norman lord who owned Cardiff Castle so absolutely tamping about it went down in the night on his own and kidnapped this guy's family and took them back to his castle and ransomed them back for a load of money and the land that he lost okay wow that's... So there's a brilliant fascinating local hero stories <laughs> you know also nicely self-contained as well yeah absolutely know. furious about this right that's it i'm gonna get him <laughs> and, and probably did yeah <laughs> trudged down there Wow. And kidnap his family. So yeah, it, there's there's a rich history around us and a rich um, society of people, and we are lucky in a sense that we are adjacent to to, to England and we are part of Britain, and that does help to elevate us a tremendous amount mm. on the global stage. Even if we don't realise it, yeah, yeah. we're way more famous than we should be. Yes, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't I don't begrudge that side of things. This isn't well. You said like Wales's history is kind of hidden. Is that feedback into the working class thing you said about? Or? Yeah, I reckon so. Um, I think that that's a lot of it. But also the Welsh language side of things too, because a lot of things don't translate. Not don't translate, haven't been translated. Yeah. And the deeper I've dived into Welsh history, the more I've discovered that there are amazing stories that may only have just been, been coming across to English. Mm. Like literally from the start of my enterprise in sort of researching a lot about um, Welsh mythology in the Welsh underworld, I, when I started doing the research back in the late 90s, there was barely anything to look at. And there's a wealth of things now. There's more stories that have been maybe translated for years have become better to easier to access. Because even with the internet, a lot of Welsh history is still hidden. And they might copy and paste a bunch of very old Welsh histories online. But um, it, unless somebody's there to translate those histories, they're going to remain unknown to most laymen like me anyway, mm. who, who are not very good with the lingo, especially... Late medieval Welsh, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. it, it is good that it hasn't changed maybe as much as others, but still, it, you know, it can be a bit tough when you're going back. Yeah, and I say, I just think uh, you know, if, if you're a Welsh person and you are interested in your area, dig into it because there's something going on there, and you'll find out some pretty interesting things. Thank you very much, Matt Roy. Thank What's you for your time. Okay, so that was Matt Troy. I say, a very interesting character, very interesting friend of mine. I really must urge you to check out his and his friend Drew's podcast, We Make Things Fight. It does exactly what he says on the tin. Take two things, make them fight, but in the most analytical, geeky and informative and educational way possible. And I don't think there's anything about that statement, which is bad. So please enjoy that. Uh, as I like to do, uh, sort of listen back to the edit of this, and there's a few things I should clarify, things I said, things that came up so I would like to interpret or explain. And oh, this is basically what I learned from all this. Earlier on, I mentioned that you know, um, it was a post-apocalyptic uh, <laughs> scenario. I think I actually specified that. I just started talking about some weird sci-fi thing. That was me referring to the essay which won the prize, which got me sacked as house captain. I also said it was riddled with Mary Sue's. For those who don't know, a Mary Sue is a commonly used term for when someone who writes fiction insert themselves into the story as a particular character, but... It's so ego-influenced that this this particular character has like literally no flaws. They're far more capable and noble than any other character. They are like almost ridiculous caricatures of a noble human being. 
I think it said that Wesley Crusher in Star Trek uh, The Next Generation is widely believed to be a Mary Sue for Gene Roddenberry. He was young, precocious, perfect, very smart, ahead of his years. And Wesley Crusher was also a very unpopular character with fans, which may be related to this fact. And as an aside, the fact that Mary Sues have not one but two female names does suggest that the concept's origins may have some misogynistic elements. I, mean, I can certainly see that women authors daring to write competent female characters would have provoked a backlash, given how that still happens all the time. You know, it's like, you know, two, two women on an eight-person comedy panel show is often seen as too many women, despite them making up half of our species. But I digress. Also, in interview, something I did want to point out, uh, I mentioned... However, the canniness of sitcom characters that Welsh comedy characters seldom have. But you might have noticed if you listened to the previous episode, that's something Cara Soleri mentioned almost word for word. She also credits that observation with Russell T. Davis. And it's my bad, but I will say that that's actually a thought I've had myself many times before, uh, over the previous years even. Hence, I didn't think to attribute it to Caris because it was my own thought, but I didn't mention it first. Caris got there first via Russell T. Davis. Probably the case that Russell T. Davis thought of it before I did. He's much better at most things than I am. So, some thoughts and views on things I learnt in this episode. Uh, Ivor Bach, a little Ivor, really should be more famous. I mean, screw Robin Hood, screw King Arthur. Ivor Bach is the 12th century badass you really want. He was real for a start, and a quick bit of research brings up the Wikipedia page for his um, antics. I know Matt said he kidnapped the Duke's family on his own, but I assume that given how he was a local king, etc., which is itself a ludicrous concept these days, uh, that he had oh, a few troops or something, or a few bodyguards, but he led them himself. But no, apparently, according to legend and reports, he did it all himself. He scaled the wall of Car- Cardiff Castle with his bare hands and kidnapped the Lord's family and the Lord himself and hid them in the woods in Sengenith and ransomed them until he got more back than what he lost. The logistics of that are just mind-boggling. I don't know how the 12th century worked, but that still seems extreme. I think it's safe to say that Ivor Bach may have been the patient zero of short man syndrome. Just wonder, why aren't we Welsh bringing this guy up at every relevant moment? There is a film there, surely. All I could think of when I thought of that was, like, can Joe Pesci do a Welsh accent? Because don't tell me you wouldn't watch that. Do we take it a bit more seriously? Um, stuff Matt said about myths, Welsh myths and legends, and the Mabinogion, this is all very new to me. And look it up, the Mabinogion is the oldest piece of prose in Britain. It's from my own cultural language and background, and I never heard of it before this point. And I'm, I'm aware that it's maybe due to gaps in my own knowledge or awareness, but I'm not. I'm reasonably well read. I'm the doctor of neuroscience guy. I don't think I've been shying away from learning stuff. It's just I don't think it was ever mentioned in school, or if it did, it wasn't mentioned any particularly with any particular emphasis. And that sort of to me, that's a good indicator of our sense of self worth as a as a culture and a country, perhaps that we are responsible for the oldest piece of like you know, written literature in Britain from nearly a thousand years ago. And it was a compilation of tales and stories from before that time. And we never mentioned it. So we do mention it, obviously, but it's not sort of emphasised, it's not celebrated enough. I mean, how much, how often do we get to have to hear about Shakespeare and so on, which is obviously brilliant in its own right. It's just, just weird to think that we have made this massive mark in British history that doesn't get the emphasis that you'd think such a thing would. And, you know, just something to ponder, I suppose. But one thing that Matt mentioned that I'm, you know, I would argue is the most important take-home message for me, at least, the idea of getting out. The fact that if you want to get out, you get education, and if you get an education, it means you want to get out. I can sort of see how that happens, I suppose. I mean, any, I imagine any small, isolated community will have a similar vibe of there's not really a lot here beyond you know, whatever local businesses are in place or whatever local industry, like the coal mine when it, the valley was founded. So I think you want anything beyond that, you have to go elsewhere. And... You know, but it does speak to 
poor self-worth. The reason you get an education is to leave. And that, you know, that, that can't be healthy, really, in the long term for a, for a whole society. Maybe I'll be a small one to become convinced that only people who aren't educated want to be around there. But it becomes self-fulfilling in a strange sort of way because it means that you know, the, the idea of education, self-improvement generally, perhaps, is associated with rejection of your community, of your home, of your, of your people. And that's not nice, you know, if you're if someone who isn't, you know, didn't ever get to the opportunity to be well-educated and someone else does. Instinctively throws up these barriers between you. You're educated because you want to leave, which means you don't like us and you are better than us and therefore screw you. It may not be there at all. Like, you know, many of the most intelligent people I've met have been from the Valley. And Matt says the same thing. But this sort of black and white education means you've got to go or you want to leave idea is perhaps an unhealthy one which can lead to further <coughs> self-imposed stereotypes uh, further down the line just something to ponder i suppose i'm sure this will come up again and again so to conclude this was an episode of smart welsh people intro and outro music by john mouse all associated artwork by miriam gibbs of the dragon's Kutch. as ever i'm dr dean Burnett. to find out more about me my books and my other output go to deanbonnet.com you can contact me about this podcast, should you wish to do so, at smartwelshpeople at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at smartwelshpod. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. For more podcasts, blogs, documentaries and live events for curious people with curious minds, visit cosmicshambles.com. The Cosmic Shambles Network is supported by your pledges on Patreon. You can support this podcast and everything we do at Cosmic Shambles for as little as $1 a month and get some great rewards for doing so. Pledge now at patreon.com forward slash book shambles of course if you get the chance please leave us a good review on itunes spotify wherever you listen to this it all really does help to get us noticed thank you for listening to your command